This morning, we continue our study in the book of Exodus as we come close to finishing up the Ten Commandments. We've been in Exodus since February, and it's been a, it's been a wonderful journey that we have taken. Um, not a wilderness journey for us like these folks, but certainly uh, a journey. And having been in this book for a while, I think it would be wise and helpful if we just did a quick review of how Israel has come to this place in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai. And if you remember, after 400 years in slavery, God sends a deliverer named Moses to Israel, and this prophet of God confronts Israel's wicked and cruel taskmaster, the Pharaoh. Plagues and death rain down on Egypt, and in the end, Pharaoh relents, and Israel is Free And the gospel in Exodus, as we see, has transformed Israel from slaves to God's chosen people. It's a gospel story that is seen in the undercurrent of every page in Scripture. And all through Exodus, God is making himself known to Israel through his mighty works. Mount Sinai is the fulfillment of God's word to Moses in Exodus 3, where the Israelites would come to serve and worship God. And now they are there. They have been camped at the foot of Mount Sinai for weeks. And as God has promised, he has made himself known as Mount Sinai shook, thunder roared, trumpets blared, lightning flashed, smoke billowed, and then God speaks. And before speaking his law, which, what we, which we've been studying before speaking his law, God, God reminds Israel, God tells Israel of his love and deliverance which precedes the commandments he is about to give them. If you remember in 19.4, God speaking simply says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And then in 22, just before he starts into the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The gospel is clear in these passages before the law is given and out of love, God keeps his covenant with Israel. He protects them. He provides for them. He guides them. And he always remains faithful to them, even as we will see they rebel against him. For he is a faithful God. <clears throat> and in return, he simply calls Israel to express their love for him through their obedience to this law that they are about to receive. Now, up until this moment, Israel has only known God from a distance. They've seen him in a, in a, in a cloud and a pillar of fire. They've seen him part the Red Sea. They've seen him in the plagues. They've seen him in, in a variety of miraculous moments. But now they see his glory revealed in his words. They see his glory revealed in his law. Isaiah 42, 21 says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. We don't often think of the Ten Commandments as glorious, as revealing the glory of God. But that's exactly what this moment is all about. The Lord was pleased. 
So let us look this morning as we continue in the Ten Commandments. We are now at the Ninth Commandment, Exodus twenty sixteen, which is a simple phrase. <clears throat> Excuse me. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In the 1990s, Jonathan Aitken was a rising star in British politics. So much so, he was being considered for the role of prime minister. But sadly, as opposition research came into his life, as happens with all political situations, opposition research comes, and it was discovered that he had allowed a Saudi businessman to pay for his stay at a very high-end hotel in Paris, which was a violation of British law for all ministers of parliament, which he was at that time. When confronted with this situation, Jonathan Aiken denied the charges. He lied. He lied. As as time went on, he convinced his daughter to lie on his behalf to support what his, his lie was. And eventually, irrefutable proof comes out. His career, his marriage, and his family life are ruined. And he ends up in prison for 18 months. He told a lie. Jonathan Aiken violated the ninth commandment, and the consequences for his life were horrific. Now, as we look at the ninth commandment this morning, we must not only look at this extreme, the extreme violations of this command, which are a, a bold-faced lie, as we would consider it, like Aitken's failure, but we've got to look deeper into what this sin entails, both on a larger and a smaller scale. In the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, you hear, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. And these are extreme examples of a particular kind of sin. But we, we cannot think, we must not think that the big sins are the only ones that matter. God considers every sin, large or small, to be sinful. Murdering another person physically is the extreme of the sixth commandment, but no less evil is murdering someone in your heart through your anger and revenge. The lesser sins sadly often lead to the more extreme ones. And these commandments that God has given are to provide a a warning for us and a way for us so that our small compromises don't end up into the extremes of sin. Now, the immediate context for the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The immediate context is a court of law. Its purpose was to govern legal testimony given in a trial where someone was accused of wrongdoing and a witness came forward to give testimony. Now, in ancient Near Eastern times, in that society... All it took was one witness to convict somebody. And in that society, when you were accused, you were considered guilty, not innocent first. So the burden was on you to prove your innocence, not the burden on the accuser to prove your guilt. And in ancient Near Eastern society, oftentimes the penalty for the wrongdoing 
was death. False testimony could use this ancient legal system to literally destroy someone if it was someone you disliked or hated. And so we come to this commandment that God provides for Israel in a society where the use of false testimony was rampant and wrongly used. And God says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And we'll dive deeper, but first let us pray. Father, thank you for your gospel that transforms our hearts and gives us ears to hear, gives us hearts, soft hearts to receive your word. And Lord, this morning we look to you with a heart and with ears to hear, and we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, we ask that you would allow us the joy and the privilege and the opportunity to understand and discern what you are saying by the work of your Spirit in our lives. And Lord, as we, as we study this commandment, please bring it home to us in such a way that, that our lives begin to be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is at work in us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in contrast to ancient Near Eastern society, Israel is protected by the ninth commandment and God's establishing the need, as you read later on in Deuteronomy 19.15, that it has to now be the, the testimony of two or three witnesses, not just one. So God is, is bringing in this, this commandment. And, and so for someone to be convicted, it took two or three. It was also established that the witness testifying in a death penalty case would be required, and we read that in Deuteronomy 17, would be required to cast the first stone. Think about that. And it was also set in place that if the witness coming forward was giving false testimony and it was discovered that they were giving false testimony, they would suffer the same consequence that the person they were testifying against was to receive. That's the context of this passage. These safeguards were created to protect the innocent from injustice. Now, the ninth commandment is in that context first and foremost in a court of law, but it's got much broader application, as God intends. The ninth commandment forbids the deadliest lie, one that condemns an innocent man for a, a crime he did not commit, but it also applies to lesser sins of the same kind. What this commandment forbids is not only the extreme violation, but more importantly, in general, simply how we use our speech, how we use our tongue in everyday life, not just in a court of law. And what God intends for us to understand is the great damage, the significant damage our speech, our tongues can do when sinful 
intentions rule its usage. Sins of the tongue are what God is after because of its destructive power that it can have among the community of God's people. The purpose of these commandments, as you remember, we said this again and again, the purpose of these commandments are to protect the glory of God, to protect the honor of God, to protect the name of God, and to protect the community of God's people. So let's look at this commandment. Let's see what God, how he intended it to function in Israel, but not just in Israel, but how it should work here in our church and in the church today. So I've, I've, I've basically, the, the headline would be simply guarding our speech from. So if you're writing this down, it would be guarding our speech from. And then I've got three ways I, we can guard our speech. Guarding our speech from. And the first one is this. Guarding our speech from untruth, lying. The Bible is filled with passage after passage about how we should and should not use our speech. It speaks powerfully, in particular, against lying. And lying is so common in our culture and so often acceptable in our culture. And, and so much so we use many euphemisms to soften and to describe the violation of this command. We, we say things like, oh, well, he was fibbing. Or we just tell, it was just a white lie. Or, yeah, that was kind of a whopper. And tall tales. And, and my favorite, oh, oh yeah, I, I, I misspoke. No, you didn't. You lied. You didn't tell the truth. And, and there's so many examples. Oh, no, no, officer, I have no idea how fast I was going. Oh, really? I missed our appointment because something important came up. Well, actually, I forgot. I'll be ready in a minute. Girls say that more. <laughs> I'll do it in a minute. Guys say that more. <laughs> of course I'm listening, dear. <laughs> I know I sent that email. I just got lost in cyberspace somewhere. No, you never sent that email. Just be honest. And then one of my favorites, this is a story. When we went to the store, my mom used to tell me, every time you touch something, a kitten dies. (laughs) (laughs) But lying, lying isn't just about politicians and lawyers and media personnel and celebrities and used car salesmen. Oh, no, no. Everyone in this room is capable of violating this commandment. And most likely, if I took a survey, sad to say, everyone in this room has violated this commandment. All of us face situations that tempt us to lie. And as we survey the Bibles, we survey the Scriptures, it becomes clear that lying is a significant problem, not just in society in general, but in God's community. This commandment is given to God's people. Get that? This is is not a commandment to the unbelieving nations out there first. This is a commandment to the very people God has called his own. We are the people God has called his own. And so this commandment applies to us because 
of the destructive nature of lying and its effect upon the community. And that is why this ninth commandment exists. And many, many passages speak to the evil use of our speech. Proverbs 25, 18, like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is the man who gives false testimony against his neighbor. Isaiah 59, truth is nowhere to be found. Leviticus 19, you shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Romans 3, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. It is so easy, brothers and sisters, and natural for our sinful natures to use lying as a way to justify and excuse and rationalize some kind of behavior. It's easy to use lying to, to get what we desire. And oftentimes the things we desire are a good impression of ourselves, a better reputation of ourselves. And so it's, it's why these commands exist, to reveal how desperately we are in need of a transformed nature. Alistair Begg said this, he says, we lie about our achievement, achievements because we're jealous of another's success and want to appear at least equal to them. We lie because we are angry and want to harm our opponents. Oh, look on the internet for that. We lie to cover up our mistakes and misdeeds. We lie to impress someone and the facts alone are not enough, so we embellish. We lie to exact revenge and disguise what we're saying by just reveal, we're just revealing the truth about this person. Satan, the father of lies, used lying to deceive Adam and Eve. And they bought into that lie. And because of their rebellion, they became liars as well as everyone after them. And the only remedy is truth. And it's truth that redeems us from a lying heart and a lying tongue. That truth is Jesus Christ. John 1:17. for the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the first way we guard is from untruth, simply lying. But, but just telling bold-faced lies or flat-out lying to someone is not all there is to this commandment. We can be much more subtle and much more clever than that. Oh, my, how clever my children were at lying. How clever, ch- how clever we can be at lying. Another way we have to guard our speech is from half-truths. Not just untruth, but half-truths. This is an area where we can easily rationalize what we are saying because it contains some amount of truth. Somebody invites you over and they say, yeah, we're, we want to have you over for dinner because we have, you know, we, we have all this extra tuna casserole left over and we want you coming for dinner and Oh, sorry, we have other plans. And you hang up quick, dear, let's go do something because you don't want tuna casserole. Politicians do this all the time. So, so Governor Smith has created you know, 300,000 jobs in his state in the past two years, but he's lost 100 in another sector. But his opponent during the election campaign will say what? 
he lost 100,000 jobs. Never telling you about the other stuff. So there's half truths, exaggeration and hyperbole. I finished fifth in my high school class. Yes, you did. But there were only six seniors in your graduating class. (laughs) George O'Leary, he was a football coach in the 90s. After many years, got his dream job as the head coach at Notre Dame University. Day one on the job, a reporter checks into his history just to look. And they discover that where he stated he had lettered and played football at New Hampshire University, he had actually been on the team, but due to injury the first year and illness the second year, never played a down of college football. And two days after he began his dream job, he was fired because he lied on his resume. He did participate on the football team. Half-truth. We can give just enough information to make a certain impression, but leave out other important information that would change someone's perspective. And that is a violation of the ninth commandment. So untruths, half-truths, and then the third is the evil misuse of truth. The evil misuse of truth. And the ninth commandment covers this as well. The evil misuse of truth. It would be the sins we know as gossip and slander and flattery. Not as extreme as lying, but this evil misuse of our speech still violates God's intention for protecting his glory and his name and his community. Gossip is using our speech to to destroy others. It divides and it separates and it causes strife among friends. Proverbs 16 says, A perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates close friends. There isn't, I guarantee there's not one person in this room who has not had a friendship destroyed by gossip. Not one. We've all experienced the pain of this sin. And gossip is, is so common in every facet of society, including the church. Magazines sell because gossip sells. Headlines that entice sell. It's enticing because it gives information we like to hear. Proverbs 18, the words of a gossip are like choice, choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. I mean, that, morsels, okay, that's toll house cookie, chocolate chips, morsels. That's what we're talking about here. And when you eat a toll house cookie, it goes down to the inmost beings and you want more. You don't eat just one, you want more. And that's what gossip does. You hear a little bit and you want more. And you seek out more. And then you like the cookie so much, you go and share it with others. 
And they like the morsel, and they go and share it with others. The words are tasty, but using our speech, our tongue in this manner is destructive to God's community. Listen, listening to God, and listening to gossip, not just sharing gossip, but listening to gossip is just as evil as sharing it. Listen, in our church, if we're going to protect Grace Church from this kind of, of violating the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. If we're going to protect Grace Church, if somebody seeks to share gossip with you, there's two ways you can approach it. Simply just tell them, stop. And identify it as gossip. Not in an arrogant and prideful way, but in a way to protect God's name and God's community. And another thing you can do is simply say, oh really, can I quote you on that? Can I quote you to that person you're talking about on that? And it will shut that down. We must not gossip. Another way is slander. Slander is often sharing what is true to elevate yourself and tear down another. Just because something is true doesn't mean we have to share it. Slander is where we can often engage in false judgments and unfair criticisms. It's a, it's a subtle place where, where reputations are destroyed. And, and as I've said many times, and you know I am, I am illiterate when it comes to social media, um, but social media has become a breeding ground. A breeding ground for the evil misuse of truth as well as a place to share half-truths and lies. It is frightening how quickly, how quickly comments and quotes are passed on to others in this medium. It, it, and at the root of it, it re- just reveals the cowardice that people have in making false, misleading, and slanderous statements without identifying themselves, doing it anonymously. God hates this kind of behavior. Proverbs 12, 22 says, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in all who are truthful. James 3 describes the devastating effect of how we use our tongue wrongly. He goes on, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil 
full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. When we violate the ninth commandment and we and we see that expressed fully in this James passage, when we violate this commandment, we have standing behind us the father of lies. We become instruments, destructive instruments in his hands. James is bold and clear when he tells us no one can tame the tongue. It's impossible, and it's, it's being faced with the impossible when we're confronted with this root problem. The reality is it's because we struggle with wicked and sinful hearts. Luke 6.45, Jesus speaks. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What, what we say comes from what lives in our hearts. Lies and gossip and slander and flattery and half-truths. And Scripture tells us where it all begins. It begins here in our hearts. Stone hearts, evil hearts, wicked hearts that are in need of a supernatural transformation. Listen, the catastrophe of sin is that it kills everything it touches including us. And rightly, because of that, our own conscience and hearts condemn us. See, the ninth commandment has its relevance by beginning in a courtroom. We, we stand in a courtroom where one witness, the heavenly father, rightly accuses us of sin and rebellion, and his witness against us is true and just. But also in that courtroom, is another who pleads our case. It is Jesus Christ, our Savior, and our friend who pleads, who paid our debt by taking the punishment upon himself in that courtroom as the judgment is rendered. He took our sin and he took God's wrath upon himself that we might be forgiven and made righteous and transformed so that we no longer have hearts of stone. We no longer have wicked hearts. We no longer have evil hearts. We no longer have tongues that are enslaved to sin and no longer hearts that that are not under control but under God's control. The gospel wins the day in court for us because of Christ. But another witness stands in that courtroom. And it's the father of lies. And he stands there accusing us and condemning us for our sin. And we experience that as believers. But his words have no power and no standing because the Savior has already pleaded our case and we are no longer condemned. We're no longer children of the devil, devil, but we are new creations in Christ. We've been transformed, and we are daily being conformed into the image of Christ. We're, we're no longer slaves of sin, but those who know the truth and can speak the truth. And this, in, Paul, in Paul's perspective, this is what he tells us. Therefore, 
as believers now. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sin, the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace. It may give grace to those who hear. Let us think like that. When, when I'm speaking, let these words resonate in your mind. When I'm speaking, does it give grace? What I just said, does it give grace? Does it give grace to those who hear? He, says, goes, he goes on to say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There, the gospel. You've been forgiven. This is what we are called to now as believers, as Christians. Now, if lying and half-truths and evil misuse of truth have been a trouble to you, you have sinned in those ways, you can come to Christ this morning. You can come to Christ and confess your sin, and you can come to Christ and be forgiven of all your unrighteousness and be cleansed from all your unrighteousness. Jonathan Aiken lost everything, but eventually in prison, he gained Christ. He became the author of one of my all-time favorite books, The Biography of John Newton, From Disgrace to Amazing Grace. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. The gospel transformed a liar into a child of God. And he does the same for all who trust in Christ for their salvation. If you have yet to trust Christ for your salvation, you can. He, he makes a way he makes way, God makes a way through his son. He has provided an opportunity for you to hear the very gospel you need to hear at this moment. And you too can go from disgrace to amazing grace, like Jonathan Aiken. As we close, let us be reminded that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor for the glory of God's name and for the good of God's church. Now here's the best advice I've ever heard about telling the truth. Let me close with this. If you always tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. <laughs> Isn't that great advice? If you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said. Let's pray. And this is where our pastoral prayer will well, Father, our response to your word this morning is that we want to be those who are transformed by your word. 
Father, your word has reminded us today how desperately we need you as we battle against sin. Please help us as the writer of Hebrews has so wisely said, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily and closely and let us run with endurance the race that it set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Lord, please help us there. And where we have lied, please forgive us. Where we have told half-truths, Lord, please forgive us. Where we have gossip and slandered and flattered, Lord, and listen to gossip, please forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to protect our Christian community, our church, the church we so dearly love from division caused by this sin. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can come to you this morning and plead for grace. Lord, for all those who are feeling condemned this morning, please help them to see you and your love and to experience your transforming power working through your spirit. Lord, for the churches in our area this morning that are suffering from division because of this sin, these sins, please work through your spirit by bringing peace and healing and hope and change to those church families. Lord, please glorify your name in the gospel churches in our area. Lord, for those in our church family today who are suffering, for Mike Stogsdale and Stephen and Denise Griney, for Jane Thompson, for Justin Cowan, for Walt Rohr, Lord, for Sharon Pyle, Lord, we, we ask that you would bring relief to these dear folks who we so love. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for the successful surgeries that Sharon had this week and for Jean Mays, Lord. And may they, may they experience your, your healing grace as they recover and may they recover quickly. And Lord, we, we pray for all the expectant moms in our church this morning that they, they would know your strength. They would, they would know your, your health as they, as they carry these babies and that, that they would come to, to full term with, with a healthy birth and a healthy baby. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for providing for Grace Church in so many ways. And as we part this morning, Lord, let us part with truth on our lips and joy in our heart as we remember your great salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.